Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what we celebrate today. It's not just that you rose from the dead. It's all of the significance of that. It's all of the hope and peace and joy and restoration to God that we can have. It's that the doors of heaven were kicked open and we have access to the Father. We can come with boldness before the throne because of what you accomplished for us on the cross. We're grateful, as heart-wrenching as it is, for all of the suffering you bore for us. We're thankful that you didn't give that up, that you didn't say, I'm not going to do that, but you followed through with all of it so that we could have eternal life. We could have a relationship with the Father through you. Lord, we thank you that the story didn't end with the burial of Christ as well, but that three days later he rose from the dead, thus proving himself to be God and everything that he said to be true. And that is what we hinge our eternal hope on. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Humans have always been on a journey to discover the answers to the big questions. Why do we exist? What is our purpose? What is the meaning of life? This is nothing new. Maybe you've wrestled with these questions yourself, but this is nothing new. Philosophers and sages have attempted to figure out the answers to these questions ever since the creation of humanity. A man named Job, who many scholars believed lived during the time of Abraham's grandson named Jacob, or shortly thereafter, from the years 2100 B.C. to 1900 B.C., wrestled with the meaning of life and the purpose of suffering. In his wrestling with these big questions, he even thought of God as being inconsistent with himself. In trying to reason with his earthly suffering, with his faith in God, he questioned God and he said, You formed me with your hands, you made me, but why does it seem like you're just out to destroy me now? Now you completely destroy me. What's going on? This man, Job, couldn't seem to wrap his mind around this apparent inconsistency with the meaning of life. These questions were being asked as early as 4,000 years ago. This is nothing new. In Greek philosophy, the poet and philosopher Heraclitus, who lived around 500 BC, famously penned the words, character is destiny. Character is destiny. The implied message of this statement is that there are no predetermined forces that, that control our lives that we as humans have no control over. More specifically, Heraclitus said, day by day, what you choose, what you think, and what you do is who you become. Heraclitus was the proponent of the philosophy that the meaning of life is what we as humans make of it. Aristotle, who lived in the mid-300s BC in ancient Greece, seems to affirm a form of this claim by Heraclitus when he penned, neither by nature then, nor contrary to nature, do the virtues arise in us. Rather, we are adapted by nature to receive them and are made perfect by habit. Specifically, Aristotle posited, we become just by doing just acts, temperate by doing temperate acts, brave by doing brave acts. 
According to one author, what this means is that humanity has a human nature, but the purpose for humanity is just to do virtuous acts, which in turn will then make humanity virtuous. Any logical response to this by any human who has lived about 1,500 years later in 2019, any, any logical thought in response to that would be that this hasn't worked out too well for humanity so far, has it? It's been 1,500 years. Are we any closer to being any more virtuous than we were 1,500 years ago? We know humanity as a whole is not any more virtuous than they were 1,500 years ago, even after all of these years of so-called human understanding of virtue. Fast forward to our modern era. A lot of renowned scientists are atheists who thoroughly believe that there is no reason for humanity, there is no meaning of life, and there is no purpose for humanity. Seems like every day you open up a newspaper or a news website or peruse social media, there's someone else claiming to know what the meaning of life is and how you can finally be happy. So-and-so finally came out with a, a new book or a new blog post claiming to know the secret of life and how you can finally be happy. Over 6,000 years have passed to the year 2019, and with all of our so-called human advancement, humanity on its own still has not solved this mystery. Still don't have any answer for it. So, my question is, is there an answer? Is there an answer to why humanity exists? to why we personally exist? Is there a meaning to life? What is our purpose as individuals? And if there is an answer, does that give us any hope, if there is an answer? The Apostle Paul, who lived in the first century AD, and under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote most of our New Testament, dealt with these very same questions. It's entirely relevant to us today. And he even had a pretty intense debate about the philosophy of life with some very well-learned philosophers of his time. Paul's conversation is recorded in Acts 17, which we read a, a couple of verses from a, a few minutes ago, tells us everything we need to know. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Acts chapter 17. It's in the New Testament. If you didn't bring your Bible... Uh, with you. That's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. If you're having trouble finding it, ask a neighbor. Look it up in the table of contents. There's no, there's no uh, shame in that. You go through the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the very next book that you hit is the book of Acts. And we're going to be in chapter 17. Specifically, we're going to be starting in verse 16 of chapter 17. See here a clip of a map of the ancient world during the time of Paul. During Paul's second missionary journey, during the years 49 to 52 AD, Paul planted a church in the ancient Macedonian port city known as Thessalonica, right there. And then was driven out of that city by a mob. Paul and his companions fled to the neighboring town of Berea. They fled from Thessalonica to Berea there where they were also able to lead several people uh, in Berea to faith in Jesus. When those in, who, who instigated the mob in Thessalonica found out that Paul was still in that area, he was just the next town over in Berea, they went over to Berea to stir up another mob targeting Paul. Paul's not a very popular guy at this point in time. 
Those new Christians in Berea put Paul on a ship, and that ship eventually made itself all the way here to the very famous city in Greece known as Athens. I'm sure Athens was a pretty intimidating place for a Christian philosopher and missionary to start talking to people about Jesus in. It had centuries of prominent philosophers seeking to discover the secrets of the universe and set up schools for their own disciples of their discoveries. In fact, while Paul was preaching in the Athenian marketplace, we read in Acts 17:18, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus in his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he picked up? They thought Paul was like maybe many people that we know today who just pick up piece, bits and pieces of things that they hear and say, well, did you hear this about this? And they don't actually know anything that they're talking about. They just heard it from somewhere else, and they want to tell you about it. Others, say, others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. They didn't know what he was talking about. You may think you have reason to be intimidated while talking to other people about Jesus. Think about this situation that Paul was in. Paul went toe-to-toe with followers of some of the most prominent philosophies of ancient Greece. The group of philosophers were those who followed the teachings of, of Epicurus and, and uh, Zeno, uh, of, of Stoics. Anyone know anything about Epicurus? Probably not. But the essence of his beliefs still prominently dictate the way that many, many people today see life. The tenets of Epicureanism revolved around the central belief that the purpose of humanity was to seek pleasure and happiness. One scholar pointed out that included in this was an emphasis on avoiding the unpleasantness of fearing death by seeking a life of tranquility and freedom from pain. If any deities existed outside of the human realm, Epicurus believed that they did not concern themselves with the pain and experiences of humanity. Philosophy aside, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? That sounds a lot like what a lot of people today think is the meaning of their personal lives. Chasing after what they think will make them happy. Trying to avoid about thinking about death and seeking ways to find freedom from their pain. If God exists, he doesn't care about people, and we have to find our own ways of coping with everyday life. Today, this can take one down some pretty dangerous roads, can't it? That way of thinking. You may be sitting here this morning, and this may seem very familiar to you. In fact, you may be filled with an emptiness that comes from believing your purpose in life is to chase this kind of life. The reality of life, if we're completely honest, the reality of life is that in this broken world, death and pain are unavoidable. It's an impossibility to avoid death. So why avoid thinking about it as an inevitable reality? Not in a macabre way, but in a reality nonetheless. Similarly, for many of us, pain, whatever form it takes, physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual, is unavoidable. Once again, because of this broken world, one may never escape the pain that they experience on a daily basis. 
We all know that we cannot will ourselves to not feel that pain. That's impossible. So again, is there any hope in connection with death and pain? We'll get to to that in a minute. The next group of philosophers that Paul went toe-to-toe with was the Stoics. This, this school of philosophy followed the beliefs of a, of a man named Zeno, who often taught on a painted portico, or stoa, in the Greek language. That's where the, their name came, up, uh, came from. Stoics believed that there was this cosmic force called purpose that was directing human history. The purpose of humanity was to align themselves with this cosmic force. While this belief produced some noble virtues, it also resulted in an overwhelming sense of self-sufficiency and pride. Again, this prevailing belief continues in our culture today. This one also sounds very familiar. How many people do you know, and coming in today, you may also believe this, have this belief that the universe is the force in control of humanity, that the universe is the force in control of humanity. The universe rewards you for doing good and the universe rewards you for doing bad. Karma gives you what you deserve. The shortcoming with this outlook on life is that there's no room for grace and mercy. It's simply a balance sheet where you simply get paid back for what you do in this life. It's still incredibly self-centered. You do nice things for other people simply for the universe to do nice things for you. And beyond that, who's to say you've done enough good things to warrant you a good afterlife or not? There will always be this anxiety that you've either done too much bad to warrant you a bad afterlife or if you've done enough good to warrant you a good afterlife. Some people think that's how you generally get into heaven when you die. You do enough good things, generally, you never kill anybody, you go to heaven. That's how a lot of people think you get into heaven when you die. But the same anxiety and concern hangs over that worldview as well. Have I done enough good to gain entrance into heaven? Or are my bad things too bad? Again, is there any hope? Well, these philosophers certainly wanted to know the answer to that question. In Acts 17, 19 through 21, we read, Then they took him, Paul, to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. They didn't want to come to a conclusion on any of them, but they wanted to continue to discuss them. Wow! What an opportunity for Paul to lay it all out for them, isn't that? Come explain this to us. We're giving you, we're a captive audience. We're giving you an opportunity to explain this to you. If you have come this morning and you too are open to hearing something that may be new for you or maybe you haven't thought about it too much before this, I encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity too. If you didn't get a chance to open your Bibles yet, here's your second chance. Here's another opportunity to do, please do so now. Hopefully we're all in Acts chapter 17. We're going to jump to verses 24 through 27, and we're going to read this together. The God who made the world and all things in it, this is part of Paul's explanation. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything 
since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they may seek God, if perhaps they might grope or, or, or search out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The foundation for the existence of humanity, its purpose, and the meaning of life is exactly what Paul lays out for those who would listen to him. You see that? God is the foundation. That's what we just read. God is the foundation. It has nothing to do with humanity. It has nothing to do with our pursuits of happiness or avoidance of pain or trying to align ourselves with some kind of cosmic point system. It has nothing to do with how we think we understand the world and, the, and, and how the universe works. It has nothing to do with human endeavor, human discovery, human government, or human convention. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with a self-sufficient God who doesn't even need humans in order to exist. It has everything and only to do with Him. Nor does that rely on anything, anything anything humanity can do. In fact, as we just read, it is God who in his existence, character, in essence, is what humanity needs. Why did humanity originally come into existence? That question is better phrased. Why did God create humanity to exist? While God does not need humans, just as we read, he created humanity to glorify him. While that seems a bit egotistical to God, it actually gives us, if you follow that reasoning, it actually gives us the greatest significance we could have as individuals than anything else this world has to offer. It has nothing to do with what we think we want, and it suddenly gives meaning to everything that happens to us in this life, even the very painful things, all for the glory of God. How did God create us? In Genesis, we read that God created us in his image. That's the phrase that's used. That means every life has worth. Every life has meaning. Why? Because God created every human being to be a reflection of his eternal character and therefore be a representative of him on this earth and therefore to glorify him. Not only that, but being made in God's image is, means being a reflection of his character. And humanity has always been created to need everything that God is. That's why Paul immediately says in the following verse in 28, For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. I don't know how many people know this, but this is the first part of this, in him we live and and move and exist, is actually Paul quoting another one of these Greek philosophers named Epimenides, who is also a priest of the Greek god Zeus. In his poem Cretus, Epimenides' character named, named Minos addresses the Greek god Zeus and says, for in you we live and move and have our being. So, by Paul directly quoting this well-known fragment of literature from 500 years before that, is saying, you already have a somewhat understanding about this. 
You've got a starting place for this. You already believe in a deity whose existence dictates your own. That being exists, but it's not Zeus. In fact, it's someone even greater than Zeus. And why is that important? Because in Greek religion, Zeus was not almighty. Zeus was the king over the other gods in, in that polytheistic religion and had some kind of control over them, but he did not have this, the kind of sovereignty over humanity and over the world that Paul was declaring the one true God did have. So even though Epimenides may have claimed that humanity found his, its existence stemming from Zeus, big whoop, that only went so far. In Paul quoting this, he's saying, where the weakness of that pagan belief ends, even though you already have a starting understanding there, is fully realized in the truth of who Almighty God is and how he relates to us as humans. When it comes to Almighty God, our whole being is completely reliant upon and derived from God and his character. That's why it feels right to search for some kind of cosmic force that we can become a part of. But we've already discussed the glaring shortcoming with just settling for that. However, there is a God who is the definition of love, the standard of goodness, who upholds the universe with his power. In fact, when God created the very first human, he created him with this foundational reliance for meaning and life and power and who... who who we are completely flowing from God himself. That's included in, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. When he did that, he created this connection between God and man. And that man could only have uh, his, his existence, the foundational reliance for meaning and life and power and who we are directly connected to God and completely flowing from him. That same concept is furthered by the wisest man in human history in Ecclesiastes 3 when he wrote, he has planted eternity in the human heart. God planted the understanding and longing for something eternal in our hearts. A knowledge that there's something more than this. There's something more than we can see. There's something more than what we experience on a daily basis. God planted that understanding and longing for something eternal in our hearts. Because he knew that he would be the only one who could fulfill that longing. We all feel that, don't we? We all feel that. We all know that in our innermost being. That there's something more to this life. But a lot of the time, we try to fulfill that longing with other things that this world has to offer. But somehow, it just never feels enough. Right? I'm not speaking into a vacuum here. We all know this. We all understand this to be true in our own lives. Somehow, it never seems like it's enough. And there's a reason for that. This is the reason for that. God created humanity to be connected to his character and power. That's the way we were designed. So the concept of human self-sufficiency or not needing God goes completely against what is innate to us. It's purposely trying to go against what was originally created in us from the beginning of time. Our very essence as human beings was purposely designed by God to need him in order to have our life 
and being and joy. Can't have it without him. But over time, and with some deception from the enemy of our souls, we thought we could be self-sufficient. And even self-sufficient to the point of wanting to be God ourselves. So we broke that connection with our Creator by disobeying the one rule He had established in order to chase after desire to be like God ourselves. Because that connection was broken and the establishment of us as representatives of God, not God's ourselves, was trampled on, the curse of sin spread to all humanity like a sickness, infecting all of us and the world that we live in. Turn the news on for one minute, and you know that to be entirely true. That was the consequence set forth by our Creator, the ultimate end of which is death. The New Testament tells us that the payment for sin is death. That's the just consequence from a just God. If God was not perfectly just, there would be no justice in this world. We would have no concept of what justice was at all. Throughout the Old Testament, God set up the Israelite sacrificial system to cover sin with blood, but it was never meant to be the ultimate solution. It was always weak, for the result was still connected to how well humans could follow it. And there was still a curse connected to not completely and perfectly obeying the Old Testament law. Humanity was hopeless in our sin. We've already seen what thousands of years of philosophical endeavors to understand humanity and the universe has given to us. There's nothing we could do to reason our way back to God. There's nothing we can do to pay the payment of death, to pay for the curse, for to do so would mean that we were perfect and impossibility. Anyone here think they're perfect? I shouldn't see any hands. Good. Very good. All right. And since not one mere human could ever be perfect, that person had to be God. One of God's character traits is that he's holy. That means he's perfect. And there's nothing we can do to somehow escape or defeat death. And God knew that. Paul summed it all up to the Athenians by saying... We're still in Acts chapter 17. Jump forward to verses 30 through 31. Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is now declaring to men and women that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising that man from the dead. This, of course, is in direct connection with what God has revealed throughout his word as his plan for salvation for humanity. Again, one of God's character traits is that he is holy. That means he's perfect and there is no sin or shortcoming or failure in him. But what are we? Riddled with sin, shortcomings, and failures. Rather than allow humanity to never be reconciled to him, in his love, God decided to provide a solution. Since the payment for humanity's sin was still death, and God is still perfectly just, nothing would change that, a human had to pay that payment. But since that payment wouldn't mean anything if the one paying it was sinful themselves, that human also had to be perfect. And since not one mere human could ever be perfect, that person also had to be God himself. And so in his love, God decided to pay that himself 
on our behalf. See, God exists in three persons, three distinct persons, but is also one. We understand somewhat that concept as the Trinity. We will never fully understand it as humans, which I'm grateful for, for what kind of deity would God be if we could fully understand him in our limited human capacity. So God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came to earth to become a human being. It was the one and only time in human history that the miracle of God becoming a man happened. That man is Jesus. That God-man walked the same roads we walked, ate the same food we ate, suffered the same starvation, thirst, bone-breaking fatigue, and emotional turmoil that we experience. He was tempted to sin by Satan himself. He endured all things for our sake. He taught us about the kingdom of God, his plan for salvation, gave sight to the blind, gave strength to those who couldn't walk, healed those of incurable diseases, and released all those doomed to be oppressed by demonic forces the rest of their lives from that oppression. You can read all about what he did and how he showed God's love for us in the first four books of the New Testament. Then he did the unthinkable and paid the price of death we had no hope of paying. Not only did he pay it, but he willingly sacrificed himself to the extreme of human ruthlessness. You see, by the time God walked the earth, the Romans had perfected the instrument of execution known as crucifixion. Crucifixion was a means of execution whereby one had large nails pounded through their wrists and feet to a rough wood T-shaped cross. One would die on it when they could no longer raise themselves up and down on the cross with their weight on those impaled wrists and feet, and they slumped down, collapsing their lungs and suffocating to death. That's what crucifixion is. It was the most humiliating and torturous form of execution available at that point in human history. And yet Jesus followed through with all of it. Why? Why on earth would somebody do that? Because of his love for us and wanting to reconcile us to God the Father and offer us an eternity to be with him. What we celebrate today is the day three days later when some women went to Jesus' tomb and found that nothing was what they expected it to be. The guards placed there under pain of death themselves to make sure nobody did anything with Jesus' body were paralyzed from fear. The stone in front of the tomb was gone and an angel declared that Jesus was no longer there for he had risen from the dead. Amen? Amen. Suddenly in that moment there was hope for us as humans. No longer do we have to be held captive by the curse of our sin, held captive by traumatic events, held captive by what humans have done to us, held captive by depression, addiction, anxiety, or held uh, captive by the fear of death even. The power of all of those things was put to death when Jesus took his last breath. When Jesus took his first breath following his death, death was defeated for us. The payment was paid for us. That hope and eternal life was won for us. We can be reconciled to the creator of the universe by putting our trust in Jesus as our savior and paying our sin and death debt on our behalf and recognizing him as our king by living the rest of our lives being made into his image. Now it's not being made into the image of who we were supposed to originally be, but we're being made in the image of the fulfillment of us, Jesus. 
with that commitment, all of eternity, the sense of which God placed in our hearts is opened up to us. With that commitment, we need not fear death, nor fear the second death and banishment to hell. In putting our trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we can have forgiveness, pardon, and everlasting life with Jesus. Ultimately, we get all of God himself again. We can have that connection of meaning and purpose restored. The Bible tells us that when we recognize our place as sinners before a perfect God, and the only way we can have God is to put our trust and faith in that Jesus took our place and paid the price we had no hope to pay for our sin, God himself, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, literally comes and makes a home within us. That's both a down payment that God gives to us, sealing us for our eternal home, and a guarantee that God will walk every step of the rest of our lives right alongside of us, actually right along inside of us. The meaning and purpose of humanity was never found in humanity. It's never found in what we try to substitute God with in our hearts and lives. It has always been found in God, and you can finally have that purpose, forgiveness, meaning, and eternal hope that you've been longing for. Don't ignore that stirring that's going on in your heart right now. You've always been longing for it. Here it is. If you've never talked to God and had this recognition of commitment to Jesus, do it today. It's the most important decision you can ever make. We can finally have the freedom from the guilt of our sin or bad choices or traumatic events in our past or fear of scary life situations or circumstances or illnesses or feelings of inferiority or inadequacy or the fear of death itself. We can have freedom from all of that. When Jesus took that first breath three days later, he claimed victory over everything that threatens to shackle us, and he offers us that same resurrection victory to us on a daily basis through the Holy Spirit. So let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for what God has always known and how he fixed it so that we can have it, even through the most extreme way known to man. And let us live and breathe and have our being and rejoice by that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That resurrection gives us eternal hope, both for this life and for the next. I want to close our time with a verse that I referenced at the very beginning of our time this morning. Romans 8, 11, The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, these wonderful words, these powerful words. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today who is yet to make that recognition before you, yet made to make that commitment, by recognizing, just being honest with ourselves and recognizing, yeah, I'm a... I've sinned. I cannot work my way back to most holy God. It's impossible. My only hope is by putting my trust and faith in that Jesus took my place. Jesus paid the price for me so that I can be restored to God. And because of that, I'm going to live the rest of my life for him. Lord, I pray that if there's not anybody, who, if there's anybody who hasn't made that commitment yet today, that they would do so right now. And Lord God, if there's anybody, those, those who have 
made this commitment, even if it was years ago, I pray that you would renew that, that you would breathe new life into that, that they would see their life and being in that and live every day through the power of the resurrection through the Holy Spirit. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.